0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the All Angles podcast. In this episode, I'll be talking to Sheree Friedman, and Managing Director at Eurasia Group covering climate and sustainability. In this very wide ranging conversation, we talk about Sheree's interests and how she got to her current position, starting with the Kyoto Protocol, some time in her garden making biofuel, and then ending up sort of talking to policymakers and major asset owners and CEOs around the world as to how they're contemplating and mitigating things like climate change risks, plastic pollution, biodiversity loss, and water risks. We also talk about what it takes to move hearts and minds in this space and and the kinds of changes that will be needed. I hope you gain as much from the conversation as I did, and please let us know if there are any topics that you would like to cover by emailing the team at all at MFS.com. The views expressed are those of the speaker and are subject to change at any time. These views are for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a recommendation to purchase any security or as an offer of securities or investment advice. No forecast can be guaranteed. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Sheree, welcome to the podcast. Thank
1: you, Vish. It's so good to see you.
0: It's great to see you too. Sheree and I first encountered each other really uh, on some client events last year that MFS and Eurasia Group participated in, which we might talk about. But Cherie's been involved in this field of sustainability for 25 years plus from a wide variety of perspectives that she's gonna explain in just a second. And I think operates a really fascinating intersection of policy and the impact it has on Eurasia Group's clients and financial markets. So before we dive too much into that, Cherie, I was wondering if you would give our listeners a brief sort of potted history of your background, going all the way back to the beginning and sort of how you (laughs) got to the seat that you occupy now.
1: Yeah, so it has been really varied. I feel like if you kind of had a visual, you'd have climate and sustainability at the center of a spoke, and then you have all these different applications on how you look at climate and sustainability. So starting off, I mean, I I started off just being so interested in politics that I, I joined the federal government and joined looking at climate change. Frankly, honestly, back then, the science wasn't as clear as it is now. The science was pretty clear, but there was still, the, the the my feeling of it was like, look, if climate change is going to happen, or if it's not, everything that we do to prevent climate change is probably a good environmental choice regardless. So let's go for it. This was back in the early 90s. And so I joined the Environmental Protection Agency. From there, we, we were kind of got, figuring out where the United States could land vis-a-vis the the brand new UNFCCC, the Framework Mm. Convention on Climate Change. Then I joined the, the negotiating team for Kyoto and on the CDM. So it kind of was all on this policy and negotiating. It was really interesting. And then I went from there into finance. And I started working for private equity, which also was really fascinating. And I kind of, stuck on the finance track, worked for an asset manager, worked for an international finance, uh, for a a multilateral development bank, the International Finance Corporation. And it sort of, and Eurasia Group kind of came full circle back into politics, kind of taking all these different pieces. And I will say in the middle, I started a biodiesel business. And not that many people know this piece, but I started off making biodiesel in my backyard. I bought a VW, right? This VW diesel car. And my neighbor and I decided we were going to make biodiesel in our backyard. And I thought, you know, it's so easy to do this. It's disgusting, by the way, if you're like covered in oil. But I thought this is so interesting and not easy to do. Why are all of our buses and all of our city equipment run on regular diesel? Everybody should just be grabbing their local waste oil, adding some lye and methanol and shoving it into the buses. And so I started a business called Smart Fuel, and I partnered, we had a pilot project in Philadelphia and it was really interesting. And then frankly, what happened is I started having kids and I couldn't have kind of two babies at the same time. So so wh- where is, baby. I'm
0: fascinated. I know nothing about biodiesel. So I'm fascinated <laughs> by this. So are you supposed to be covered in oil in your garden? Is that part of the process or is that just something that you came up with?
1: Right. Well, I didn't purposefully like pour, pour the oil on top of me, but what you're doing is you, if you do it, you can either get virgin oil, but we were taking it from our local restaurant called Mark's Kitchen. So we'd go in the back with our, with our, you know, buckets and we take it out. And then what you have to do, if you got to strain out all like the French fries and the chicken chunks and you strain all those out. So you've got like a more pure amount of oil, and then you heat it up the oil up, and then you add methanol and you add lye and you titrate it. But the, this process of like straining the oil is really messy, and there's no way you escape without smelling like a big French fry at the end.
0: Excellent. <laughs> I knew about the Kyoto uh, Agreement and your your role in the negotiating team, which is obviously amazing. I knew about venture, and I knew about some of your other roles. I didn't know anything about your uh, entrepreneurial streak in, in biofuels. So maybe <laughs> maybe we'll come back to that um, towards the end. Um, so um, Cherie, maybe just uh, if you could give a little background for listeners that may be unfamiliar with Eurasia Group. So um, talk to us a little bit about sort of where does Eurasia Group as a whole operate? And then I would love to just dive into your particular area after that and sort of some of the things that you're focused on.
1: Sure. So Eurasia Group, it's it's named Eurasia, which was is more of a historical piece of it, but it's a global geopolitical risk group. And and every time I say that to people, their eyes glaze over. They're like, "What does that even mean?" But what it basically is is, and and the whole firm has gone through a lot of evolution. But at the core, big multinational companies that work across a lot of regions need to understand. What, what is going on politically? What is going on? What, where are the political winds moving? And so this could be in just one country, if, if there's nobody looking after that in one country. But a lot of times you want to understand the country, then you want to understand the dynamics between countries. And you want to understand how some of these big geopolitical shifts that are going on are going to affect your business. And so we have experts in China, in the United States. We've got experts in all of the Asian countries in Africa and Latin globally. So people who are diving deep into the country and then stepping back and talking to each other to understand how this is affecting different companies. We deal a lot with financial institutions, but there really isn't a sector that we don't cover. So we've got cement companies and and fuel companies and every kind of company that you might imagine that would need to be tracking geopolitical trends. And I think the easiest way to understand this is when Russia invaded Ukraine, there was a lot of fallout. It was affecting fertilizer companies. It was affecting oil companies. It was affecting renewable energy companies. It was affecting anybody who used energy, which is anybody. And so you kind of had to understand what is about to happen. How long is this going to go on? Where are the markets going to be moving? And that's what we advise companies on
0: in general. Amazing. And so, and Shuri, your role, again, I described it, uh, and I think your official title is Managing Director of Climate and Sustainability. And I know that covers all manner of sins. Um, wh- what are you focused on today? What are the kinds of topics that are piquing your interest?
1: There's different trends that that go across all of the countries, and these include supply chain, includes energy, includes geotechnology, and it also includes climate and sustainability. So for climate and sustainability, we take a look at the trends and the regulations that are coming up and the policies that are coming up and how that is going to affect companies. And a lot of these trends are not actually political. And I think, you know, Vish, you're in the center of one of them, which is the financial markets and how the financial markets are treating climate and sustainability. Some of it's political and policy-based, and some of it's actually being led by the financial institutions themselves and how they're looking at risk and how they're looking at information they need on climate and sustainability. But as we look at this, the climate was really the one that, that, globally was a leader in how people are thinking about this as a material impact to their company. So we don't look at things that that we think are important environmentally. We might in our own free time, but at work, we're looking at the environmental trends that are affecting our client companies materially as their bottom line. And the ones that we really focus on are, are climate, of course, biodiversity, plastics, is a big up-and-coming one that people are going to be needing to pay attention to. There's going to be legislation around there. Water, we're looking at separately, but really also overlaps with almost everything. You know, the impacts of climate change have water implications. Biodiversity has water. You use water when you make plastics. It under it underlies all of it. And then we're also looking at climate litigation and how that's popping up, and, and environmental litigation in general. So those are the places that we believe are... Affecting companies that companies need to be paying attention to.
0: Amazing. So you mentioned the plastics as one that you think people should be increasingly aware of. Could you? It's super interesting. There's so many parallels here between our work, and this is what's always been fascinating to me about um, when I get to swap notes with you, Sherry, about because as you know, and as the listeners might know, MFS is obsessively a sort of much more of a fundamental, long-term. And more sort of bottom-up oriented we certainly have macroeconomic thinkers and people that think a little bit top down but generally speaking across our complex we are uh, really interested in sort of real economy kind of companies and entities and sovereigns operating in that space and how do we analyze it and we sort of build up uh, from the bottom up We're, and so again having a different perspective from yourselves has been super powerful i think to us as we've as sort of swapped notes on that because as you said, you know, to have a view on a cement company or a com- any kind of commodity company or an energy company has to involve some level of understanding of where global markets and global policy is going. Mm-hmm,
1: um, so absolutely. there's lots of
0: parallels. And as we think about sustainability or even I often draw analogy with sort of technology, there are some of these things that cut across sector teams, which is sort of how we're, we're naturally more organized. So we need to think horizontally across them. So there's so many parallels i think in terms of our day job in terms of how we think about things across our organization and we've actually done quite a lot of work on plastics as you mentioned in the financial sector. you know how do we think about that from different players and different industries sort of interacting together um for the last sort of couple of years so I, i'm really interested in in your your take on plastics not something that we've ever really discussed before but what's your take on plastics why do you think people should be paying more attention to it what do you think are some of the unknowns for for most listeners um, around the issue of plastics?
1: I think the first thing to note is when we're talking about plastics, we're not talking about like the plastics that that create lighter cars, like some of the some of the infrastructure plastics are not what the target is. It's really plastics pollution. And so I think that the way that people have thought about this traditionally is really in terms of recycling and reuse. And I think there's a big dichotomy in the conversation going on right now about plastic pollution elimination, like kind of disposable plastic elimination and recycling. And I think there's gonna be a place for both, but following that is gonna be really important. And backing up over to why we think this is important, you track this as policies start coming out and, and there's always a lot of international chatter and there's been a lot of international chatter about plastics. And so you kind of have to know, like, where is this going to fall out? Is this going to be something that you really have to track or is it going to be something that people like to, to take positions on and make you know, pledges on? But what we're seeing is internationally, the movement to create a plastics target and plastics reduction is in a really accelerated pace. There's going to be a conversation that's going to be going on in May for the for an international plastics treaty and now if that happened just on its own that would be one thing but that's coupled with on-the-ground policies that we're seeing we're seeing plastics bans coming out locally we're seeing them coming out from countries we're also seeing um increased focus on some of the some of the solutions so chemical recycling and just One quick note on chemical recycling is that there's different pieces of disposable plastic again. So as you talk about disposable plastic, you have like the non-disposable plastic and then the targeted disposable plastic. Some of that is already easily recyclable. And then there's a part of it that you just can't recycle, like plastic, some of the plastic packaging, like the more flexible plastic packaging can't be recycled. So then there's a process called chemical recycling and that's gotten a lot of attention recently to be able to reduce it. However, there are issues with chemical recycling, there's pollution, it's very energy intensive. And so the question and where this comes out is going to be, is that gonna have a role or is there going to be a sufficient amount of reduction of some of these harder-to-recycle plastics? And I'm interested, Vish, to hear your take on it. Where do you yeah. think this is? What are you guys looking at?
0: So the way that we tried to break the problem down, and, and I think you captured so much of it really, really well, is sort of there's four sections for us. So there's the producers of plastic, and some of those are the chemicals companies. There's the packages. Then there's the kind of consumer staples companies. So again, if we're t- thinking here about sort of... I, typically sort of single-use plastic or, or other sort of single-use forms of plastic, as you said, not in kind of production uh, of vehicles, for example. And then you think about waste and recycling. So you think about the, the sort of life cycle of plastic. And actually what we had discovered is not many people... Maybe because it sort of cuts across multiple traditional sectors in the investment industry, have sort of followed that chain all the way through. So, we actually did a, a lot of work between 2019 to, to about 2020, 2021, sort of trying to map that and get really good on understanding the data, sort of where the research and development is happening, what's the role of virgin plastic versus. Uh, recycled plastic, how many times can you use recycled plastic? What's the role of chemical recycling versus other types of mixed use recycling, for example? Where is it going to be cost effective, not cost effective for different um, organizations to do it? And um, again, across the MFS complex, thinking about sort of materiality, not in terms of financial materiality per se, but also materiality of MFS ownership, we tend to have uh, a good size ownership of consumer brands products. So some of the kind of classic brands that people will be very familiar with, MFS may own in 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 some size. And so understanding those are material risks to ownership positions that we have in our client portfolios. But what could that mean for the brand value of that organization, or, you know, potentially upside as well, in terms of being ahead of the curve, if there is a Uh, International Plastics Treaty that starts to bite on, on this and starts to raise costs, what is the supply chain fragility, for example, of some of those entities that we may own and understanding potential range of outcome risk and things that may not already be baked into the data. So for us, it's a sort of analytical edge to think about it in that way, as well as to make sure that we have access to High quality data and um, high quality insights into things that you don't just get off the shelf. And so that actually took us into some really, really interesting places with some of Mm -hmm. those um, big consumer brands companies with some of those waste and chemical recycling companies with some of those packaging companies, in terms of really understanding the full supply chain, um, up and down. And where the pressure points might be.
1: I mean, I think there's two other pieces in plastics, and I know you don't want to spend this whole time in, in plastics, but there's there's is a differentiated response in industrialized countries and developing countries, and so when you're talking about the recycling supply chain, you know the whole it, it's really dependent on a very solid stream of waste collection, which isn't always available in every country. And when I used to work on your side of the equation, when I was working for the International Finance Corporation, we were trying to finance, you know, the whole recycling chain, and it's very fragmented with a lot of different actors. And pulling that together from scratch, or where it's not a full loop, is really complicated in a lot of countries. So I think as we start to talk about the solution areas, it's important to note that it's very differentiated. And so in some places, bands might be the way to go and in other places you may end up just being able to create a full closed loop. And the other piece I think that I'm sure you're looking at also is you know the opportunities. And you touched upon this a little bit, but the opportunities to be using non-plastic uh, materials you know, whether that's biomaterials, whether it's substituting a more recyclable material, like aluminum instead of plastic, or, you know, like, there's a lot of different ways to look at this. And then there's the companies that are building the infrastructure for the recycling, and then there's the opportunities there. So it's a lot of different moving parts as you very, very clearly laid out in the whole Mm. scheme.
0: It's funny, we've been looking at um, in Africa, for example, so to your point on fragmented versus sort of being able to get to a closed loop type situation. And an undercurrent of this podcast and this whole series has been the need to understand the nuance and the complexity that underlies often some of these things. So we can talk about plastics and plastic waste and plastic pollution. And some of the, there is some core principles there as to how many times can you use a piece of recycled plastic, for example, and what the ultimate solution might, might be. But then you get into sort of what is the actual waste collection in, and how is that different in, for example, the UK versus Europe versus the US versus Africa? And the answer is it's dramatically different in terms of where you have centralized waste collection versus very decentralized and fragmented waste collection, and therefore what the most cost-effective solution might be. So again, it's it's uh, as people as you peel back the onion, there's more and more kind of complexity underneath there. Um, but Sheree, as you mentioned, I don't want to spend all the time, but that's fascinating. Just given that you flagged, you know, that's one area. Um, Another area that you flagged was biodiversity. And this, I'll be totally honest, is an area very, very close to to my heart and has been for for a long period of time. I'd love for you to just explain your your perspective or Eurasia Group's angle on biodiversity, why it's important and where you think the conversation might be going.
1: Yeah, so biodiversity, it it feels like it's drafting climate. Like you know when you have bicycle riders and like one is up front and the other ones are drafting behind. So the one up front's hitting all the headwinds, and climate basically had to hit all the headwinds to explain to the world that understand that that there's a fundamental underlying systemic risk to companies from an environmental outcome, which is a really different conversation from this reputational risk. Like if you're just solving for reputational risk, you're trying to avoid the big bad things from happening. But if you actually have to to understand how an environmental impact or how a policy to, to mitigate an environmental impact can systematically affect your business, it's a whole big mind shift. And that took a really long time with climate. And then biodiversity, it's the same thing. So it's taking a bit for people to understand this, but if you are an ag company, if you are a clothing company using cotton, if you are a beverage company, a beverage manufacturing company, if you're a retail company that has any of those things in your supply chain, if you're a mining company, like all of these things are going to be affected by biodiversity loss or by the policies that mitigate biodiversity loss. And so, for example, I mean, I think it's it's hard to talk about it in the abstract because the biodiversity piece isn't really um, so obvious. But biodiversity loss will mean a loss of pollinators. And a loss of pollinators means a shift in agriculture. And a shift in agriculture is going to affect everything that I just noted. Then the policies to try to mitigate that are going to affect things like mining, right? Which then, of course, affect you know, how we get all of our materials. So it's a a really complicated issue to address. And the reason that I say that it's drafting climate is that this idea that it's going to be affecting our economy, whether we want it to or not, whether we create policies on or not, is starting to get understood, and the movement around it is coming really rapidly. Mm. It's far more quick than climate. I mean, I've been working on climate for now 30 years, and the last five years have been really rapid, but the first 25 years were so slow. And I mean, as you said, Vish, you've been looking at this for a long time, so maybe you're like, wow, this is really fast, but it feels like from the moment that the globe started to look at this in the same way that it did climate, The place that we're getting to right now is so much faster. And you asked about what companies need to be paying attention to. And the first thing is that they're going to be needing to disclose their biodiversity risks in a similar way to climate risks. And this is already coming out. I think it was two days ago, the TNFD, the Task Force of Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, just came out with a new draft. And this is the guidelines on how you disclose the impact of biodiversity on your financial bottom line, both on the policy and on the impact side. So the rapidity that this is going to be hitting companies is big and I think as in your world, you know, you start to see the pension funds going, oh my gosh, we need to be, the asset owners start saying they're the long-term thinkers. We need to be paying attention to this and then they ask the asset managers and then the asset managers ask the companies and then everybody has to start paying attention. What do you think? How are you guys, how are you seeing this?
0: I think abs- absolutely. I think to your point, you know, people are talking a lot about sort of poly crises, and this is, I think, one of them or, or a confluence of factors here. I think climate change, natural capital loss, and degradation is impacting the real economy's ability to produce, whether it's food or productive capital, um, and it will start to impact, and it already has started impacting. If you're paying attention to some of the geopolitics and some of the movements around the world, social issues, inequality issues, and it's impacting and it's sort of creating this vicious circle. So I think policymakers are paying increasing attention because um, the IPCC came out with an interesting report last year. It was the first time I I saw that they'd sort of drawn this sort of, in my mind, a triangle between climate change, social inequality, and uh, biodiversity loss or natural capital loss. And it was a recognition that you can't solve for one point of that triangle without and ignore the other two because you will optimize to the wrong outcome. You have to sort of thread the needle between all three. And I think personally, and again, I'm curious on your take, I think that's what policymakers will increasingly be paying attention to because, again, I have the great privilege of talking to clients all over the world. And, And if you're in a developing economy and you're a central banker in a developing economy that is somewhat reliant on commodities, understanding climate change is really important and you're likely to suffer impacts of physical and transition risk on climate but you also have to balance that with the social inequality issues and some of the natural capital loss issues that many of those economies are facing and food security and energy security issues that many of those economies have faced as you said you know since for example the invasion of ukraine that has sort of put an even more stress fracture on some of those already you know quite fragile uh, ecosystems so all of that is now sort of bubbling up to the surface and we and Collectively, there's a consciousness that is realizing whether it's sort of from policymakers to um, asset owners and investors and individuals who then influence people like ourselves, uh, who then influence, you know, companies or, or the other way around, you know, companies are proactively recognizing, you know, if you, as you said, you know, if you're making coffee, and you think that 90% of the farms in West Africa are now desertified, and you're unable to grow cocoa or coffee beans on on those as you once did that's actually a systemic and structural issue that you're going to, uh, we're going to have shortages or you're going to have to figure out a different way to kind of grow and supply your demand uh, base. And that's, again, something that as investors, we have to be paying attention to. It's just an obvious thing. If, if we're interested in owning a company for a long period of time, we have to understand how they treat the communities in which they operate, the natural resources on which they rely, mm-hmm. as well as you know the other material fundamental risks that, that we have to think about. So, Again, to us, it's a kind of natural inclusion in a long-term investing framework. I suppose where, where, we, where I struggle, and, and I'll put this question to you, Sheree, on climate, and I agree, actually, it's been very rapid, and I, I like the drafting analogy. On climate, we had a, quite a clear scientific consensus and quite a clear sort of, I call it a common currency. You know, CO2E is a is a kind of common currency measure, right. and it's super convenient for investors because... You can roll it up by uh, sector or industry or portfolio, and you can think about, you know, and there's clear definitions around, you know, scope one, scope two, what that means, how you measure it. My sense is, and the TFND is trying to do a kind of heroic job, I think, of trying to frame, but the by industries, back to that nuance or uh, understanding the differentiation between different geographies, industries, and sectors. My sense is, having spent a lot of time in, biodiversity and natural capital loss that that's going to be an incredibly hard um, metric to achieve we're not going to be able to measure this using one very simple metric and generally i'm not sure we're ready for that level of complexity so um again just your perspective on that you're you're probably closer to it than i am how how are people thinking about that or, or do you agree or disagree with that
1: perspective I totally agree with you. There's not going to be a like carbon equivalent, a GWP, which is a global warming potential where you could take all the greenhouse gases and put it into one metric. It's going to be various different metrics. And I think you're already seeing this. As you say, the TNFD already started to to pull it apart. To me, it reminds me of those loaves of bread. You know, you can get a loaf of bread where like, it's made up of a lot of different loaves, but it's all in one loaf. So you kind of pick it apart into that's what this feels like, like biodiversity loss is one big loaf of bread, but it's made up of individual different types of things. And you can't compare them. You can't compare a metric of biodiversity loss from water, from water discharge into a river and the biodiversity loss that that causes with mining and what that might cause provide it's it's going to be completely different, you know, compared to what you might see from, you know, uh, on an agricultural pollinator loss. It's all going to be different. And so the TNFD has divided this up into different sections, as you noted. And I think that's going to remain. And I think that they will remain as being able to identify the different pieces of biodiversity loss in their own understandable metric. One of my colleagues, Frank Frank Bagadi is our lead on biodiversity. And he spends a lot of time with our clients walking through which type of biodiversity loss might be be material for each individual client, because not every client is gonna have to care about every single type of biodiversity loss. People are gonna need to focus on which one affects them either as the biodiversity loss or as the policy to mitigate the biodiversity loss. So it will be very separate, I think. Mm -hmm.
0: That's amazing. Um, Thank you. I really appreciate that. And it's an area, I think, that's got so much more mileage to go. I'm always saying to people that I don't think best practice has yet fully emerged in really anything in sustainability, certainly not climate change, even though we're we're down the track. And um, this is another one that I think is really exciting because um, there's so much more to come, I think, in terms of clarifying our thinking collectively as an industry and, and as a sort of real economy in terms of how we understand and bring some of these things into our model. Um, And can I just say
1: something about that Mm. before you, because I totally agree. You had touched upon this earlier, that there's a lot of different pieces. All of a sudden, you know, we've got climate and then you're like, wait a minute. And now I've got to think about biodiversity and Hold on a second, water really? And wait a minute, I also have to think about plastics. Are you kidding me? How, why? I I can't imagine these are all really important. But I think that one of the things that we're seeing is that the environmental consciousness came as people were looking really far out there at what is about to happen if we don't mitigate behavior. And behavior was mitigated, I think, on the margins. But by and large, we've kept the same way of you know, extracting, using, producing, throwing out. And we're coming up to where this model is bumping up against some of our environmental barriers. So we're seeing actual impacts that people were saying we're going to see. can empathize with existing CEOs who are sitting there saying like, I I have to all this, like, you know, we've had this model over here and all of a sudden I've got to start thinking about all of these all at the same time. And I agree with you, Vish, that that they do all have to be considered at the same time, not all in the same weighting, For certain companies, in certain moments, in certain regions, you're going to have a different weighting of all of them and a different way of addressing all of them, which in some ways makes it more flexible, which is better, and in some ways makes it more complicated because you have to know more about what's going on in the different regions and the different places. But I think as we start thinking about the solutions, some solutions are going to be weighted more heavily in a biodiversity solution with maybe do no harm in all the others and some will be more weighted in other areas so i just think it's it is yes to everything but not all at the same weight all at the same time all in the same region
0: yeah no i totally agree and and again that lends itself if you have a team of you know, we have a team of 315 investors and Eurasia Group has this kind of, as you mentioned at the beginning, a span of people that can think about the kind of the nuance, the subjectivity, the complexity, the dynamism that they're seeing in their particular zone. But like you, I have deep empathy for the asset allocators, the CEOs, the asset owners um, and other people um, that don't necessarily have those resources. And, and hopefully this podcast is one way that we try and reach out and sort of share some of the thinking around in, in different organizations. So I appreciate that. I'd, I'd love to know, Sheree, actually, there's so much complexity. And there's so much, quite frankly, depressing news out there. I'd love to know what what's one thing that sort of excites you? What's one great white hope? You're not quite in your garden, covered in uh, biodiesel oil anymore, but but you know, um, what what are you sort of excited about? What do you think is 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 exciting at the moment?
1: There's kind of two different answers on the what I find exciting. I think there's, there's certain technological pieces that I hear about all the time. I think people are really focusing on it, which gets me to this other piece. Before I even go down to that technology rabbit hole, one of the things that gives me hope is that. Over these 30 years that I've looked at climate, like I said, it was like nothing, nothing, nothing. And all of a sudden, some major step changes as people started to take it seriously. And some of those step changes, I could not have predicted. I call it the transformation wild card, And I believe that we will have a few more transformational wildcards. I think that the pressure, like, for example, one of them, I think, was when Greta Thunberg came on the scene and she started, everybody was like kind of had their blinders on and everybody knew what was about to happen, but she was like, hello, world is actually burning. And she mobilized an entire generation who then was very hard to not pay attention to, which really made everybody, I think shift their thinking on what was happening and create a level of urgency. I think the other one, you know, in your world is Mark Carney. When Mark Carney was like, all right, we talked about this earlier when he started to say this is not something climate change is not something we should be doing out of the goodness of our hearts. Preventing it is not a charitable act. This is going to cause a systemic risk to our financial system because nobody's accounting it in their longer term business models. And so there's going to be a moment where this is going to cause a financial breakdown as nobody's thinking about these risks. And that caused everybody to put it into their bottom line and look at it as the good and the bad that their company is doing. And I use those phrases that, that it's a judgment phrase, and I don't mean it as a judgment, but like the things that could, that could cause global warming and the way that your company could be affected all of a sudden became a financial decision. And that was transformational that was another step shift. And so to me, I feel like those were step shifts and as the IPCC report showed us, it's not sufficient. We're still on a pathway for climate to exceed the 1.5 threshold. Like I think if they said that if all the fossil fuel infrastructure that is currently in place continues to exist and produce at the point that it is, we go toward two degrees. So that's just with existing infrastructure. So we're not there, but I believe that we will see additional transformation. There's enough pressure that there will be some other transformational wild cards that happen because it's just, just historically, we're seeing that happen faster. And I think that's gonna happen in climate. I think it's gonna happen in biodiversity definitely in water, wherever you see this pressure coming in, where there's nowhere to go, you're going to start to see these wild cards. What do you think? I'm curious.
0: I'm ever the optimist. I think we will get there. I'm I'm less optimistic on some of the technology, but I think some of the thinking that is happening around how we really get to grips practically with sort of behavior change and mindset and and sort of heart shift on some of these issues is really important. And like you, I think the transformation of building it more and more into financial models or into our fiduciary responsibility as long-term investors, as an example, um, is an important moment. It's a kind of watershed moment, I think, where Um, This has kind of largely gone uh, mainstream. So that's kind of super interesting.
1: I agree with you. Can I just say one thing on the technology? Mm -hmm. I agree. I don't think technology alone is going to Mm. save the day. I don't see how it can, because every technology you have, there's like kind of, we were talking about the trade-offs, like there's always a trade-off on one technology to another. Alone, it won't. So I just wanted to put that out there.
0: I think as an enabler of the transition I think I totally agree. Uh, technology is an enabler or a facilitator of of what needs to happen or what is to come, uh, one way or the other. is um, is super important. Sherry, a question for you. One thing that you would change in the financial services industry if you could wave a magic mm-hmm. wand and change one thing.
1: Um, that's a really good question, and I just want to preface it with the fact that I think that the financial industry has moved farther than policy, you know, and it can only get so far out farther than policy because ultimately it's a money-making industry that, and so it it can't start making decisions on what it believes should be. It has to make decisions on the, you know, on the physical and on the political landscape that we have. But that said, I think if I was gonna, going to change one thing, it would be This might be so weedy that it's not a really great (laughs) overarching answer, but I feel like in the financial industry, we have an understanding at the very, very top level that of some of these risks that people need to be facing. And I feel like we have an understanding from the group's that look after these risks. And on some levels you have it on the investment officer, but I don't feel like it's actually in many places. I think, Vish, honestly knowing MFS, I feel like it's far more integrated in your organization than it is in many. I think that it's still a separate thing from what I can tell and it's not as integrated and there needs to be a more systematic integration of the understanding of all of these pieces as risks. And a lot of it gets to really training all those middle steps from the top down to the investment officers to ask the questions because everybody works to their their incentives. I mean, one of my favorite quotes is people don't change because they see the light, they change because they feel the heat. And every single investment officer, as we all do, we work toward our incentives. And so if you're not asking the questions of the investment staff, what is this risk? How does it have to do with this risk? then you're not actually changing your or your your firm systematically and so that's what i would change is like a more integrated understanding of the risks down every level of the finance of financial institutions
0: great thank you i love that quote people don't change because they see the light they move because they see they feel the heat mm-hmm. or hear the music i don't know we want them to to or move the music, the music. <laughs> um i love that thank you for sharing that one thing Really interesting. And actually, I I feel this with lots of my guests. Sheree, you've um, talked about, you know, you've had different seats in multiple locations, looking at that same hub, as you described right at the beginning with different spokes. Is there anything that you would point to, if I just limit you to one thing, one thing that you think has really sort of helped you as you've had to deal with adapting to change or to understanding, again, a very, very dynamic field. And you said, you know, it moved very, very slowly for a period of time and having patience with that. And then suddenly you've seen this kind of exponential growth in interest and change and dynamism around this space. Want th- anything that's you you would point to or any resource that you would share with our listeners in terms of something that's helped you deal with that change?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know about dealing with the change, but just being a part of the change and how important it is right now, I think, and this might be specifically toward women, but I feel like it's it's about making sure that your voice is out there. And I think p- human beings tend to want to be right, right? You tend to want to be right before you say something. And I do think women more, this is something that that happens more with women, that before you put yourself out there and act and have an opinion and get into the conversation, you want your ducks in a row, right? I do it too. And I feel like one of the things that has helped me is reframing everything to say like, all of us humans here are in kind of like this big ship and we're all trying to avoid large catastrophes and everybody's voice, it's not about any one human individually being right. It's about all of us collectively sharing our thoughts and putting ourselves out there so that we can get the best understanding of what's out there and make sure that, that the information in our perspectives is considered inside of major decision-making. And that's to me why this particular position is so interesting to me that my team it's a lot of people sharing a lot of information. I think that you know we have one perspective. I think everybody's going to have a different perspective, but getting all of those out there so the big actors can know all these perspectives and make good decisions. But everybody's perspective is important and I think that the main thing is making sure that you that nobody lets fear get in the way or perfectionism of moving this forward. We don't have enough time, frankly.
0: Yeah. I agree. And I I was thinking about this as you were responding earlier to sort of um, things that you could change in the finance industry and and sort of not getting too far ahead of policy, because I think you're right, we operate within certain rules of the game, and those rules of the game are dictated by policy. I guess a question or a challenge that I could imagine some people would have is the financial services industry or the financial industry is a sort of systemically important industry. Does it do enough to... And lobby is probably too strong a word but does it do enough to inform or to influence kind of positive and constructive change into the future rather than be a kind of passive recipient and i know that actually eurasia group is doing something in this space in in sort of north america and, and thinking about actually what those kind of connections might be so perhaps we'll have you on in a future episode to kind of talk about some of those um developments um at eurasia group and sort of how you're trying to actually bridge that gap between Sort of some of the industries that not just the financial services industry obviously but some of the other systemically important industries that you serve and how that kind of connects with decision makers policy makers to make sure that we're all kind of connected and understanding the Mm -hmm. different perspectives i think that's a super powerful point um one of the transformational wild cards that we have on this show is that i ask a previous guest a secret question to throw your way so i have an envelope on my desk given that we're doing this over zoom sherry Um, that I'm going to open and ask you a secret question, if that's okay, from a prior guest. Um, And so I don't know what this question is. So I'm going to read it out. Um, What is the most important collective mindset shift that's needed? And how will we get there or make it? I feel like buying you a bit of time but i feel like you've answered some of this already in terms of that integration mindset for example you talked about getting a voice out there just now so we've touched on this a little bit but so I'll i'll read the question again what what do you think is the most important collective mindset shift that's needed and how will we get there or make that shift
1: i think the biggest shift that's needed is understanding that the world has the the earth has physical boundaries that are non-negotiable. And I feel like a lot of times people say to me, do you think that that the UN is going to change the 1.5 target? <laughs> like, it doesn't really matter if the UN changes the 1.5 target. It's, it's a physical boundary by which we can't politically negotiate our way out of. Either we exceed it. Or we don't, and if we exceed it, there are consequences. And so I think getting ourselves into the mindset that we are now pushing up against these, and there's no way to get around that. And I think that once that if that mindset shifted to the idea that, and there's a great, I'm going to forget her name, but there's something called donut theory. Yeah, Do you Kate Rowith. Kate,
0: Ruleworth. Kate Ruleworth.
1: Yes. says it better than I can. So, it, but it's that idea that we have this boundary and we're pushing against it. So. I think this is to your point, Vish, that behaviors are, are probably going to need to change. I don't know what that's going to look like, but that to me is going to be the mindset when people understand that, that will then move um, the behavior changes.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Great. Well, Kate Raworth and some longtime listeners of the show will know that I'm a huge fan of donut economics and um, Kate Raworth, and she talks about sort of the ecological ceiling. So Sherry is describing, you know, there are some natural limits and there are, sort of nine of them that the stockholm research institute came up with but then there's also social floors that we want to protect as well and the sort of just and safe space for humanity to operate in in that model is actually somewhere somewhere above the social floor and somewhere beneath the ecological ceiling if that if that makes sense and and actually it's Mm -hmm. a It's something that the World Economic Forum and the UN and other people have started to really take into account and actually cities around the world are taking into account. Um, I think Mm. Amsterdam has has sort of adopted some donor economics uh, models, so it's well worth paying attention to to that as a sort of paradigm shift, I think, in how economics is evolving to kind of really take these things into account, um, which will then sort of feed future policymakers and thinkers uh, and business leaders and owners in terms of Uh, what we actually pay attention to so um, Mm -hmm. listen shuri all that's left for me to do is thank you deeply we're very grateful for your time and for your insight today it's been fascinating talking about because we started with sort of plastics and moved on through to biodiversity and then we're now talking about sort of seismic and structural paradigm shifts in in our industries (laughs) and with policymakers. so we covered the full gamut but thank you so much for spending your time with us today we really really appreciate it
1: oh it's been my pleasure thank you so much for having me
0: So that was Cherie Friedman. I thought it was really interesting how she talked about what really moves people. The, the fact that people don't move because of light, but because of heat. I thought it was interesting how she brought that back in to things about models, whether it's donor economics, ecological ceilings. But I, one thing I've always been impressed with with Cherie is just how practical she is in her wisdom and her insight in terms of what this really takes to move. And Like I mentioned, Eurasia Group and MFS and many other people are working really, really hard on thinking about how the financial services industry has a role as an agent in terms of the future, in terms of helping policymakers and decision makers make good informed choices. So a lot more to come. Thank you again for your time today and for listening to this conversation. Let us know at allangles.mfs.com if you would like to hear anything else on some of these subjects.